From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE can help you manage your money in different currencies. With WISE, you can send money to your cousin in Australia with ease, travel internationally without having to brave an airport currency exchange desk, and take away the guesswork that goes along with converting currencies. WISE lets you send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, all without any hidden fees. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com, WISE dot com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. We should start right, okay. the podcast so that, Let's so that Matt can, like, get, you know. <laughs> got to get legal. <laughs> <laughs> I was telling Jeff I think it would be probably probably a boost to ratings <laughs> to get deported. Um Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here with Jane Coaston, and of course, ProPublica's Dara Lind. It's been a little bit uh, since since we've all been here together to to talk about the news. Yeah. Um, and and weeks, s- since, th- since that time, uh, we have had a rip-roaring discussion about whether uh, Ilhan Omar should be sent back to Somalia, um, whether... Various native-born American colleagues of hers should also go back, back to, to wherever Ayanna Presley places. is from. Look, people have been trying Cincinnati. to send me back to Cincinnati. Cincinnati for years, and I refuse to go. <laughs> no, no, right. I, I identify deeply with Ayanna Presley. I was like, no, thank you. Not to get sent back to Cincinnati. Yes, this is the kind of disdain for the heartland, Jane. We've, this is why we, we have this out with Pete Buttigieg. Yes. Our, like, we earned our way out credentials are hard fought. <laughs> we did. But, we, we followed the great American tradition. Kevin Williamson would stand up for us right now. <laughs> um, but, you know, of course, the reason that people are calling for Ayanna Presley to go back to where she came from, well, there is kind of a little bit of slippage going on here, of course, because the squad, quote unquote, uh, the four progressive freshman members of Congress who have kind of, you know, become who originally associated with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, but like Omar at this point has become her own kind of lightning rod. So it's very easy to use the fact that Ilan Omar actually is a Somali refugee yeah. to kind of to say, oh, it's not, you know, he wasn't calling for U.S. born citizens or like he wasn't calling for Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who is Puerto Rican, but born in New York to be sent back to either New York or Puerto Rico, which for the record is also in the U.S., although it's never been clear whether Donald Trump himself knows that. Right. Um, But the level of obfuscation and gaslighting that has taken place here where, because I I wrote about this, but there's this cycle where Trump will say something, and in this case, say something bananas-putting racist. 
And then people are like, no, 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 no. The words he said were not the words he meant to say. Because, you know, when people say, oh, he tells it like it is, they don't mean he tells it like it is. He tells it like he sees it. And then people backfill to explain why he didn't mean that these native-born Americans should return to where they came from. You know, you saw the comment from a I think Trump's campaign comms person, Matt Wolking, where he was like, no, no, no. He said, go back to where you came from and then come back and sure. teach us. And I yep. was like, OK, sure. Great. I mean, I think like there has been a kind of there's been an ongoing conversation about what all of this says about like the way that Donald Trump and his fellow travelers think about race in America and Mm -hmm. the broader question of whether non-whites in America are kind of civically full citizens or whether their citizenship is always in some way viewed as conditional in the eyes of of white Americans. Like, that is, there has been a lot of good conversation out out there. What is interesting to me, for very obvious Dara-related reasons, is that it's interesting that this conversation is focused on Omar because she is not just an immigrant, but a refugee, which is a type of immigrant that like has come under increasing attack from the right over the last, you know, decade or so for exactly this reason of not being sufficiently American. In the way that like the, for all the Trump administration talks about chain migration and yada, 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 it is generally true that most people coming to the United States are coming, you know, to like coming as legal immigrants into the U.S. have either family ties, that's how they're getting in, or already have, you know, an offer of employment and therefore can be expected to have certain skills that are necessary. And the place that refugees and asylees play in that is not like there isn't that obvious answer. The argument for taking in refugees or taking in asylum seekers has always been like it's a reflection of who America is. And it seems like a lot of America has at this point decided that it's actually not who we are, or at least not who we want to be. And that tension is really getting brought to the fore with the accusations that Omar, despite being a naturalized U.S. citizen, isn't actually loyal to America, that she isn't really part of it. Well, and I I also think Trump as often does, kind of framed this in a very sloppy way based on a Fox News segment that that dragged other people in. But I think that there is a politically strong argument that I think people on the right have to make about Ilhan Omar and the refugee resettlement program, which is that when you think back to some previous waves of refugee flows into the United States, whether that's Vietnamese boat people who came in under, you know, something resembling the the existing refugee resettlement program or um, immigrants from Cuba whose immigration status is different legally, those are some of the most conservative groups of non-white people in the United States, right? right? And that is a model of refugeeing that— has not been uncontroversial in its day, right? There's incredible stories about, like, labor unions and the Ku Klux Klan teaming up to, with like, burn down white boats. fishers yeah, it was, in, in yeah. Louisiana to, to fight. But, like, this was a Reagan-era initiative, right? right? So it was like Reagan was not with the Klan or the labor unions uh, or the native Louisiana fishers. He was with the Vietnamese refugees. And— Refugee resettlement of Vietnamese people and the uh, very generous treatment U.S. immigration policy gives to Cubans was part of a Cold War strategy. And the beneficiaries of that immigration policy, they sort of did their part 
in the Cold War strategy, mm-hmm. right? And they became sort of American super patriots in a foreign policy sense, right? Not in a like dissent is patriotic, blah, blah, blah sense, but in like a very- Or in a like our country right or wrong rally around the flag boys right. kind of sense. Like this is something that we still see in South Florida Cuban politics, right? The idea right. that like your primary political commitment is that you want to screw over the regime that screwed right. you over. But so there was a very specific sense in which anti-communist American politicians- accepted refugees from communist regimes. And then those communities themselves became pillars of anti-communist politics. And the critique of Omar personally and the Somali refugee community more generally is it has not worked like that. Right, that by allowing Somali refugees in to Minnesota and Maine, I think are the, the main places where where they are, you've created communities that reflect a uh, politically reflect a Muslim world sensibility about U.S. foreign policy, which is quite critical of it. Right, that they don't come here and say, "Wow, our home countries." are really, really terrible. We are really glad to have come to the United States. And as people who have come to the United States from our bad home countries, we are here to tell you that American foreign policy in the Middle East is really good, that like Israel is amazing, that living conditions in the Islamic world are abhorrent, and the American freedom mission in Iraq is the greatest thing that we've ever seen. Instead, their politics, Ilhan Omar's politics, is reflective of mass opinion in the Muslim world about U.S. policy in the Middle East, which is to say it's very critical. And that's different, right? It is not, they have not come here and become big war hawks, right? Like she had that big viral moment grilling Elliot Abrams about, this is about Latin America policies. There's nothing to do with her personal ethnic identity, right? But like she belongs to a tradition of left criticism of U.S. foreign policy And that, to a lot of conservatives, means that refugee resettlement is no longer working. It's not accomplishing what it accomplished in the 70s and 80s and building ethnic blocks of U.S. superhawks. It's doing the opposite. It is like undermining the American uh, regime from the inside. And we see this uh, time and time again, this idea that citizenship, if you obtain it, because uh, you're a refugee or because you come to this country needs to be this degree of transactionalism. And mm-hmm. you saw you know, Lindsey Graham attempting to defend Trump by saying, like, well, if you're Somali but you wore a MAGA hat, no one would be asking you to leave, yeah. which that's going to be tough news if the basic I construct question of, that. Yes. I your basic right. construct of your patriotism is based on whether or not not just the, the Repu- you support the Republican Party, but whether or not you support Donald Trump. I'm aware that There's been a lot of writing among conservatives on this, on like how the construct of citizenship and patriotism is or is not different for people who come to this country in different ways. But the idea that someone who has been through the immigration process, and if you have not done that process, it is not a fun process. It is not a cheap process. It is not a particularly enjoyable process. But the idea that, oh, the last section of this secret patriotism test is thou shalt not challenge whomever is president at the time 
as you know, provided they are a Republican, that's not included. And it's not included for natural born citizens. And it's, it's not included for people who come to this country. What you're asked when you emigrate while you're doing your uh, interviews and stuff like that is, are you a member of the Nazi party? Are you a member of the communist party? There is no like, how do you feel about the Republican party in kind of a general way with regard to foreign policy question? Yeah, I mean, I think that this is one strain of it, but I think that it's it's maybe a little easy to look at Elon Omar, who really does crystallize this particular breakpoint and, and say that that's where the breakpoint itself happened. But like, I think it's worth thinking about over the last couple of decades, the two specific cultural or semi, semi-cultural, like they don't really get America critiques mm. that conservatives have been allowed to make about immigrants that aren't explicitly racial or religious are they use welfare because they don't understand the value of work and they don't speak English. Mm. And in general, those things have been spectacularly untrue of immigrants, right? Mm. Like most immigrants are barred from getting major social safety net programs until they've already had green cards for five years. Like the, you know, language acquisition rates of like of family-based immigrants continue to be basically where they were 100 years ago, et cetera, et cetera. The people for whom this is, those two critiques are most true are asylees and, well, and particularly refugees because the refugee resettlement program you're being referred to the U.S. by UNHCR in most cases, the U.N. Office or the High Commissioner on Refugees, like you've been in a camp somewhere else, like you're putting together a case for why you're never going to be able to go back to your home country and therefore you really need to be given a fresh start in the U.S. instead. And it really is a fresh start. Like it's a particular nonprofit organization agrees to take you in. They will like place you in a community. You will get essentially it's like zero to 60 in 90 days. Like you're, you get housing, job training, English training for a very limited amount of time. And then like in practice, a lot of these organizations will continue to like mm-hmm. facilitate your integration into the right. U.S. But it is the only case in all of U.S. immigration policy where instead of expecting immigrants to just like have everything that they are going to need to succeed in the U.S. when they get here and actively right. selecting for that, exactly. you are coming and like the, the U.S. government is helping you get there. And so like between that and the fact that uh, refugees and asylees are exempt from a lot of the bars to, uh, you know, social safety net programs that other immigrants have, like, you know, the meme, there's been a, a meme going around conservative circles for years and years and years about like, you know, X percentage of immigrants rely on welfare, yada, yada, yada. And like the extent to which that is not a wholly made up stat is because it is relying on refugees, particularly recently arrived refugees right. who like don't necessarily have the wherewithal to succeed in the American workplace because that's not what they were selected for. And so there's been kind of like the reason that those exceptions exist to begin with is because it was happening out of this deep ideological, like maybe in the broader realm of we're fighting a war for civilization and the people who are on our side are on our side. But like the assumption that it was actually important to say, we will guarantee or if not guarantee the success, then certainly we will facilitate the success of particular people who are trying to make a new start for themselves because this is America and we care about the protection of human rights. And like that kind of ground commitment has eroded away. And therefore, people have started asking, well, why do we allow this particular kind of immigrant who is less likely to come to the U.S. with the things we want to get all these other things that other immigrants do? But I mean, I'd also like to note that this has been um, within the conservative movement, there's been an interesting kind of back and forth between social conservatives 
who tend to be religiously oriented on this specific issue, especially because if you read Christian-leaning magazines in the 2000s, you learned a lot about the Lost Boys of Sudan, and you learned a lot about like bringing refugees, generally Christian refugees, which has, has been an interesting trigger point on some issues because you're hearing from people being like, well, we can't let these people in, but we should let in these Christian minorities in other places. But you're seeing this tension, and you saw that even outside of the Christian community, you saw that, you know, part of the reason why the Tree of Life synagogue was uh, targeted by a malevolent racist terrorist is because of their support of refugee resettlement. This idea of like, these people are in need. We can help them. We can do this. I was raised Catholic. I went to Catholic school for, I don't know, what, 3,000 years. And so, you know, part of that concept was very much this idea of like, the refugee should take primacy in some sense because they need us and they like they need the concept of America and will make the concept of America more true in some sense. Back in 2015, when Mike Pence was trying to stop Syrian refugees from settling in Indiana proper, the people who were fighting that were the Indiana refugee resettlement organizations that were religious organizations saying yes. we have a moral commitment to do this. Right. So I I don't know. I I, I think I'm going to I'm going to wade into some controversial terrain here. Oh, but boy, I, boy. I, so all right. I think with all of these cases, like what you see is that the idea of completely neutral cosmopolitan beneficence is a hard sell politically. Yeah. But that when you marry the concept of cosmopolitan beneficence to some kind of identity lever that is meaningful to mainstream Americans, right, whether that is in a Cold War context, uh, people fleeing a communist regime, or whether that's in the Sudan context, it's Christians fleeing religious persecution, that that can successfully activate a politics of generosity that helps a lot of people. But that when you try to force it down a channel of like – you know, nobody ever explicitly said, okay, like we're letting Vietnamese people in because we're trying to get vengeance for having lost a war there. But like that's what was going on. But when you try to say like, oh, this has just always been about totally abstract neutralism, like we helped out these Sudanese Christians. So like now we're going to help out Sunni Muslims fleeing from Syria. It puts a lot of stress on the political system in the United States. And I hope that we can move out of like the absolute cruelty and indifference of the, the Trump administration someday. But I do think that there is something to be said for the fact that the United States historically had a really big refugee resettlement program by standards of a a country that didn't directly have refugee spillovers, right? And that's because, yes, it was like part of who we are as Americans, like the United States is a refuge. Um, but there was, I think, like an, an effort to put it together in a in a way that like works. And particularly because of the linkage between refugee resettlement and family unification, people have real sensitivities about this kind of thing, that when a certain number of refugees from a particular country comes into your community, it's not just, okay, well, those 300 people get some help because eventually that becomes a founder population for a larger set of immigration coming uh, down the pike. And like, I don't want to say that I like endorse a discriminatory refugee resettlement policy because I don't care. I don't have any problem with Somalis. I think 
Lewiston, Maine is way nicer now, that it has like diversity and good restaurants and stuff in it. But I also think it's a little it's a little naive of people who want to see the United States be open to insist that that openness has to happen on these like completely blind terms and we risk just losing the argument. So I think that may have been the equilibrium we were in in 2015. It's not the equilibrium we are now in terms of policy. And that brings me to like the reason that we're ta- that we kind of were are framing this discussion about refugees is it's not just like we're not saying that that's the most salient purpose uh, the function of like what the president was saying about Ilana Omar last week like that and that would be kind of a weird way to put it since she's like a member of freaking congress an american citizen and all of that it's also because this is happening at the same time that like as uh, Politico reported late last week and as people have kind of been buzzing about for a while, the U.S. is supposed to be setting the number of refugees it's going to accept for the next fiscal year. That's It's supposed to be uh, consulting Congress about these things. Uh, it hasn't really consulted Congress the last couple of years, but it's definitely supposed to, by like the end of September, have some kind of statement saying here is how many refugees we're taking in, or, or the maximum number of refugees we're taking in, uh, which used to be kind of considered more of a target and is now considered a maximum. And here's where we're going to be prioritizing taking them from. Over the last couple of years, uh, you know, the last year of the Obama administration, they set a target of 100,000, 100,000 and like actually we're on pace to meet it. Um, the you know first year of the Trump administration, they tried to reset the cap we're told they couldn't by the courts, but did successfully halt refugee resettlement for a while and slowed it down enough. Um, the last couple of years, the refugee numbers have gone from, you know, 100,000 to like 44,000 followed by 20-something thousand and like have not actually met those caps even. The number of people who the United States has said it's willing to take in has plummeted and the number of people it's actually taken in has plummeted even further. And so Politico reported on Friday that there is an effort afoot and like TBD whether it will succeed, but there is an effort afoot in the White House to get the U.S. to set the level of refugee resettlement at next year at zero, uh, which is a thing that the president technically can do, yeah. um, but speaks much more to comments that have come out uh, attributed to Stephen Miller and others that like they don't that they would be perfectly happy if no refugees set foot in the United States than the kind of argument they were making at the beginning of this administration that it was really just about vetting uh, or for that matter the argument of kind of selected groups of refugees based on cultural distance and patriotism like there have been concerns that despite the Trump administration initially saying it was going to make an exception in its refugee and travel ban for religious minorities, uh, which was read to be they were allowing in Christian refugees from the Middle East, it's actually been really hard for Iranian Christians to get resettled in the United States. Funny um, how that works. Th- like they're funny. The former Secretary of Defense, uh, Mattis, actually like wrote a letter last year saying, please set the refugee cap higher. Like these people, some of these people are Iraqis who have helped the U.S. Like translators. Others of them yeah. are likely to themselves go into the military or their children will go into the military. We have stats on this. Like this is good for American greatness. And that's exactly the kind of thing, Matt, that you're saying like people are more willing to accept. And that, in fact, the cur- the administration currently running the show has not been. Well, let's let's take a break and, and then let's talk about this more. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. 
Opinions are plastered all over social media. Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context. And it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then Wise might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, Wise takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with WISE. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let WISE help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E.com, WISE.com. I mean, I think what you were saying there at the end, Jared, like, that's exactly right. And it's why, on some level, I think the racism critique of the Trump administration on immigration policy is a little bit overblown in a weird way. Not that Trump doesn't say and do racist stuff himself, but as far as I can tell, like, Stephen Miller, the, like, intellectual architect of Trump immigration policy, is just, like, a completely sincere believer that, like, letting foreigners come to the United States is bad, like under all circumstances, without real prejudice or disregard or interest in, you know, a a simple nuance, right? Like, okay, you may not love the idea of like some Iraqi guy moving to your town, but wait, this is an Iraqi guy who put his life on the line to help the troops, right? Like, that's like common sense, I I think, like, negotiating of like why a country like the United States becomes open to to foreigners. And Miller is completely uninterested in that kind of thing, right? I mean, there was a question about temporary protected status for people fleeing Venezuela, mm-hmm. right? Which again, like that that is the classic thing. Like the Trump administration is like all in on talking about how terrible Maduro is, right? right. And so in a in a they're pre- fleeing socialism. They're right. fleeing socialism to the welcoming shores of American capitalism. Unless you're Stephen Miller, in which, no. And so this is a a thing that, like, I think for all the talk about racism stuff from Trump, that in a lot of ways, compared to earlier Republican administrations, which is a huge difference maker for Trump on immigration stuff, is the extent to which they don't draw those distinctions. That, like, uh, Iranian and Syrian Christians aren't okay, right? That refugees from Venezuela aren't any better than refugees from any place else. Like, they, like, really, really, really do not want foreigners to come to the United States under uh, basically any 
circumstances. And they and Trump, you know, like Trump will kind of go off script sometimes and talk yeah. about how he loves legal immigration. But I mean, they are turning down almost every dial that they can grab, as far as I can tell, that they've like tightened up the rules on H-1Bs, on spouses of work visa holders. They're making it a little more difficult for student visas to come in. They like want to cut family immigration, but they can't through administrative fiat. And then, of course, all this asylum stuff, right? It's like there's some like hypothetical merit-based system that they're for. But like all of the actual pathways by which somebody can immigrate to the United States, they are turning uh, turning down, except sort of for being a uh, H-2B worker at a Trump property. Yeah, well, not not just Trump properties. Like they are actually setting H-2B levels higher than they they necessarily have to. But like that's not in the argument. Like it's weird because no one bothers to integrate that into the argument for merit-based immigration, right? Even though you could theoretically say, well, our economy has a demonstrated need, therefore, but that's, but the no one's actually people bothering. can't stay, right? right I mean, that's, I, that, that's the thing. That, that's what you would say is yeah. the difference, is that, okay, we are meeting an economic need, and then those people go home. Yeah, right, right. Um, you know, the, the dream is if I ever get to sit down in the Oval Office and, like, ask the president a question. Like, I would love to know, like, which specific kinds of immigrants do you think are the good ones? But, because you know, do, there have been all these stories. Do you think he's going to have a really detailed answer to that? Yeah, no, 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 no. But I do think – but the reason that I think this is salient is – and this is, like, I don't remember when the last time I talked about this on the podcast was, which ne- means I need to talk about it again. My very favorite um, experimental research on perceptions of immigrants, like – if you ask, if you kind of randomize the traits of a hypothetical immigrant and then kind of throw it at somebody and say, would you let this immigrant into the U.S., their history of like whether or not they came legally is super not salient. Um, things that are bro- can broadly be amalgamated into cultural distance, uh, which y'all's colleague, my former colleague, Zach Beecham, has now like gotten into with this, with comments made by scholar Amy Wax at the National Conservatism Conference, where she, mm-hmm. you know, defended the idea of discriminating in immigration based on how how far culturally people were. From Over the, the very salient issue of litter. Yeah, no, right, right. It, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so, you know, th- that's kind of I would appropriate that to talk about the the traits in these um, that were salient in these studies, which are like hypothetical Christian immigrants are more likely to get accepted than hypothetical non-Christian immigrants. Hypothetical European immigrants are more likely to get accepted than hypothetical non-European immigrants. And like those things interact with things like education and English acquisition. It's not like it's purely a culturally based phenomenon, but people do generally assess, is it a good idea to take this immigrant in? On the basis of, okay, so we're assuming that Europeans are more like us than non-Europeans. We're assuming that Christians are more like us than non-Christians. Therefore, those people are more likely to succeed in the United States without undermining what it currently is. And like that kind of nuance is not super evidenced when you're making it really hard for Iranian Christians to get in or when you're like making it hard for, you know, Venezuelans, which would be salient, which like exactly the kind of people who Ronald Reagan would have been like, we are creating a new program for these people, uh, because that's literally how TPS got started, was Reagan saying that dissidents from Central American and South American regimes he didn't like should be welcomed. That kind of thing is not just like where the administration could be going and isn't, but it means that there is some distance between even like large swaths of the base and the administration. That's not turning them against the administration. That means that 
what the administration is saying, as uncompromising as it is in some ways, is more appealing as real talk to people who, in fact, may have more nuanced views themselves than people trying to express more nuanced views. Are right. It's interesting because I think that we see time and time again that there are divides between Trump and the Trump administration. They're not necessarily the same thing. Um, but we also see that within kind of the world of Trump's specific base, who who are not just people who voted for Trump, they're the kind of the most the devotees of Trump, so to speak. But how they're parsing this out and how that differs from how the administration parses it out, I think has been interesting in and of itself. But I mean, you know, fundamentally, like, I, I do think a lot of this pushes back to, like, Trump's original, like, lack of distinction drawing between a foreign-born Somali person, a U.S.-born child of Pal- Palestinian immigrants, a U.S.-born child of, I-, I guess, one parent from the island of Puerto Rico, and just, like, a Black woman, which is that there is a unvariegated sense. I mean, I don't think it's even an unvariegated sense that people of color aren't really Americans, but it's the it's the baseline we are losing our country. Thing. But also this that, idea that, that non-white people need to express their patriotism in a very specific way that white people do not need to do. Donald Trump has yelled invective at many people from Nordstrom's uh, executives to Arnold Schwarzenegger. And at no point has he told any of them, including Arnold Schwarzenegger, to go back to where he came from. Of course. Kellyanne Conway tried to play this card. The problem is that Kellyanne Conway ended up asking a Jewish reporter where he was from, which is, as long as we're talking about conditional citizenship, there is a (laughs) long and distinct history of Jews. Wait, wait, I I just mean, like, beyond the, like, technicalities of, like, is it... Because they they got into all this weird parsing, like Lindsey Graham and others, like, well, it's not racist because, like, if they were like Kanye, then Trump wouldn't have a problem with them. But but it's it's that the the squad right is a visually potent symbol of an idea that has been kicking around in progressive circles for a couple of decades now which is that the growing diversity of the american electorate will at some point in the future unlock a different kind of politics and like Donald Trump is saying, and I think many people believe, like, that is bad. Because after all, the whole point of saying that in the future a more diverse electorate will unleash a different kind of politics is that you are positing that this is a kind of politics that the existing electorate would not like. Right. Right? And so, like, there is a tension here. And and this goes all the way back to, like, Rui Teixeira and John Junis's uh, book from the early 2000s on um, the emerging Democratic majority to some very triumphalist takes that Democrats wrote after Obama's reelection in 2012 about the Latino vote in Colorado and, and Nevada. And, yeah, I went back and I read my own, like, post. 2012 coverage. And and it was interesting. I think in many ways, my take was better than most people's. But my look at the electoral map was the same. And it was that, look, um, because Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin had not only gone for Obama twice, but had gone for Kerry and Gore in elections they lost, Mm. those were just the taken for granted states. And so what was interesting about 2012 was that Obama carried Colorado, Nevada, New Mexico, and Virginia, which were states that Bush had won, Mm -hmm. right? And so very plausibly, the growing diversity of those states was part of the reason why Obama had won was 
obviously, like if you've ever been to Wisconsin or Michigan or Pennsylvania, the growing Latino electorate is not an important factor in those places. Um, but, you know, so the the possibility that like— It, it certainly wasn't the electoral argument that anyone was right. making. It was no, just like, people weren't I thinking I remember about looking it. at those state-by-state state breakdowns and like at the point at which you're talking about the role of the Latino vote in Ohio, it's like— Right. Yeah. And and so what Trump did, right? I mean, it was like Trump did not win back Nevada, New Mexico, Colorado, and Virginia from the Democratic column. But like he posited to the white Midwest yep. that like they did not need to accept this like inevitable transformation of American politics, right? That they could um through by empowering Donald Trump attempt to actually shape both like win the election, but attempt to actively shape this demographic future. Right. I mean, I think the other and this is like an extremely forced um, transition. But last week, somebody tried to ask me to go on the weeds and talk about everything that's going on in asylum. And I couldn't. So I'm at least one person out there is going to appreciate that I'm trying to shoehorn this in. But the the fact of the matter right now is like refugee discussions in the U.S. really are kind of a reflection of what who are we? Like, mm-hmm. as much as that helps the kind of tens of thousands of refugees who on the margin you could be resettling or not, like, mm-hmm. it is generally true that globally 1% of people get resettled and that, like, while it's certainly no one is saying that it's on net helpful for refugee integration to have fewer people, to have countries offering fewer slots for permanent resettlement, like, in general, the assumption is the way to solve the global refugee crisis is not just to rely on resettlement. Whereas, When it comes to kind of the same knee-jerk, we have no obligation for pure humanitarian reasons uh, extended to asylum, then we really are talking about a very live regional crisis where the U.S.'s role has been extremely determinative in the actions that like tens or hundreds of thousands of people have taken. And so in that respect, the fact that like we are now and while everyone assumes this is going to get held up in court because that's what happens to Trump administration policies, it has not yet been held up in court and like who knows what will ultimately happen. Um, We are now in a regime where no one who has entered the U.S. through Mexico who is not Mexican can apply for asylum in the U.S., that is, like, both for the record, people who enter the U.S. without papers and those who have papers uh, and who are applying for what's called affirmative asylum. But that makes sense if and only if you believe that the U.S. itself has no obligation to ensure the safety of people, right? Like, yes, Mexico theoretically has an asylum system. It's, like, extremely embryonic, frankly. It UNHCR has just had to step in to help the Mexican refugee, you know, applications or asylum application system because it's like so overwhelmed with even just a small percentage of the people crossing through deciding to stay and seek asylum there. Um, But if you if you believe, okay, there is maybe some kind of broad obligation for somebody to take them in. But because Mexico is there and Mexico speaks Spanish and, you know, Mexico is in theory closer culturally to these other places, that is who should take them in. This is the right. this is the position that Donald Trump has expressed like pretty explicitly, right? That like the U.S. does not have a humanitarian obligation because countries that are closer both physically and culturally should be taking these refugees in instead. And like because that is very – is when you look at the reality of like what the Mexican refugee resettlements or asylum resettlement system can take, like very much a, well, they don't have to go home, but they can't stay here approach. Um, It's not necessarily an approach that is going to actually ensure that people who apply for asylum can get it somewhere. 
it is going to, for as long as this thing is in effect and for as long as it's like affecting the decisions that actual, you know, would-be asylum seekers make, have a very immediate impact on people who are, you know, trying to flee danger and peril, if not necessarily persecution in the traditional sense, which is like what the asylum system is designed to ascertain. Um, so we're really seeing this kind of argument about like, what are America's obligations playing out in this very quiet but meaningful way, even as the entire discourse has been about who are we fully considering American? And mm -hmm. does the mere fact of like, coming here and then deciding to become American legally obligate you to also adopt this other suite of cultural concerns. All right. I think we better take a break and, and, and turn to, to our white paper. paper. Yep. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Prop G Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We have for you today Assets and Job Choice, Student Debt, Wages, and Amenities by Mi Luo and Simon Mangi. Mangi? Mangi? Uh, I don't know. Correct me, please. Um, I, I like this paper because, you know, it's it's easy to find papers you like that just confirm things you already thought. Uh, but this uh, confirmed something that a lot of other people already thought, but that I always thought didn't make sense. Um, so I'm impressed. So here's basically the idea. You, you've probably heard this from someone that like, well, if people were not so burdened by student loans, they might be more likely to take uh, public service -y or lower-paying type jobs. Uh, but because of all this debt they have, they are, like, forced into um, more remunerative, soulless uh, fields. Uh, so they actually find that by looking at colleges that have changed financial aid policies, you can sort of compare one cohort of students to another. Um, and they do some survey stuff, some data stuff, and they show that, yeah, like this is true, that students who graduate with more debt go into higher paying fields. And then they also show that those students have lower job satisfaction. So basically what people are doing, college graduates in particular, have some choice of their employment opportunities. And they have to make, to an extent, trade-offs between jobs they like and jobs that pay them more. And their level of student debt has a a pretty substantial uh, impact on this, that job satisfaction is worth about 6% of lifetime income, which if you think about how long people live, um, that's actually a lot, a lot of money. Um, then they do some weird stuff like structural models. Um, and th anyway, they show that this has a real impact on how you think about income-based repayments for student loans. Uh, because one thing that happens when you shift to an income-based system is that it actually reduces the lifetime earnings of college graduates because they deliberately opt into lower paying fields. And so if you use a kind of money only look at it, you will say, okay, this is a policy change that has harmed people uh, by making them right. like, like you were trying to help the student borrowers, but you actually made them poorer. Uh, but if you take job satisfaction into account, like you were trying to help them uh, and you helped them, then I think you could get into probably an endless realm of takes about, well, should the government really be helping people like go into their puppetry careers? Um, you know, is there a strong public interest in this? Blah, 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 blah. Um, but I, I was just interested to see that the basic mechanism worked. So I have a 
couple of questions about this. Free college is going to lead to more journalists, more right. competition for us. Yes. So end it. Um, the things that I'm thinking about here are like, to what extent can you capture not just student debt, but also the kind of comorbid economic conditions that come with stu- that right. often come with student debt? Like, if you are taking on student debt, it is sometimes because like you are coming from a high cultural capital family with lower economic capital. And so you just kind of have a blind assumption that like whatever, you'll be able to make it work. You'll be able to follow your passion. Sometimes it's because you are in an economic situation where like you're the first person in your family to go to college or the first, you know, like the first person to go as far as you have. And you're taking on short-term debt for the purpose of not just re- repaying that debt, but also making money that you can support other members of your family, for example. Well, that's right? why the, like, the, the variation in college aid policies was interesting. Right. That's what I'd always thought. That it would be like, okay, yeah, maybe people just coming from families with money are like more likely to go into like weird artsy kind of stuff, right? Because there's like a certain amount of downward social mobility in America that's like an important part of the rich tapestry of the nation. Uh, but they but they seem to be showing here that just like tweaking aid policies, you know, generates the change mm-hmm. separately from the fact that like people with a lot of student debt come from from less privileged backgrounds. The, the, the other thing I'm wondering about is like, given how much your initial income creates the conditions by which the rest of your like income earning potential is going to be assessed, which is right. like extremely real for those of us who graduated from college in the teeth of the Great Recession, who are being bombarded with studies about how like we were never, ever, ever going to catch up to the people who had graduated from college the year before us. Um, to what extent are we, you know, when we talk about like 6% of lifetime income being replaceable with job satisfaction, like are we committing people to making decisions that are actually going to have an impact on their earning potential long after their student debts are hypothetically paid off? I mean, if you assume that student debts are ever paid off, which like itself is only going to happen if you have a certain level of income. But yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. I mean, I, I would love to see more kind of study of what do we think are the like second and third order consequences of people downshifting into lower paid, higher satisfaction jobs. Because, you know, one thing they mention here is that um, uh, having student debt seems to make people less likely to want to be teachers, right? And I think we have like pretty good evidence that having more uh, graduates of more selective colleges want to go into teaching would be very beneficial to the country uh, over the long term. Uh, other kinds of less remunerative lines of work, like like the hot takes and podcasts game, I'm a little less, you know, persuaded, right? It actually might be better for have people, uh, you know, allocating capital at the investment banks and, you know, are doing something useful and like managing vast business enterprises. It's a little bit of an open question to me. Like it's it's sort of easy in like precious liberal circles uh, to fall into the idea that like obviously it's good if everybody gets to follow their passions versus have like incentives to go make money. But at least that doesn't fall out like a priori. And it would be good to know. I, I think this whole field of like what do people want out of jobs other than money right, is like right. really under-researched in yes. economics, even though like if you talk to any person ever about their work, like obviously people care about the money, but there's like so much else that people care about, like very much so. And not just in a like, I want a passion. You know, it's like nobody wants to work for an annoying boss. People don't like long commutes. People care about their hours and their schedules. And yeah, like people care about, does it seem like 
this is something meaningful or not. Uh, right. But it's well, like yeah, it's very and neglected. There's the, like, healthcare situation, I, I, and there's the perks that like those of us in like upper middle class occupations often get that are supposed to be like offsetting certain consumption, like cell phone bill reimbursements, right. like the kind of things that in theory are saying we are giving you benefits that cannot be captured in salary alone, but that in practice are going to have the exact same impact on your budget. Right. And I'd be interested to see also how this shifted over time, because I can just say anecdotally that like my parents think I have had an absurd number of jobs because my father has had, as in, as far as I know, two jobs. And, ba- and you know, he's a research librarian at the Public Library of Cincinnati in Hamilton County. Uh, PLCH. Great, great library. Um, but just the idea that I would take my talents to Vox from somewhere else, or previously I took my talents from somewhere else to go to another entity for reasons that were partly about money, but also not about money, as you were saying. That is something that I think to perhaps people of my parents' generation and likely older, you know, I think for being a millennial, I'm 31. My my parents are a little bit older than some of my friends' parents, but like their understanding is like, you go to college, you get a job, and then you keep that job until you retire or die. And I'd be interested to see how that has shifted and how this conversation has shifted about the concept of work satisfaction. Because I think even that, the idea, you know, what you find satisfying is what you can buy with the money that you got from the work. My Your dad jo- is, a, is a novelist who dropped out of high school, so we may have a different perception of the, <laughs> the generational component of this. Well, true, and, true. I mean, there's also the kind of, the like, the concept of the precariat, which has fallen a little bit out of favor as we've gotten closer to full employment, but certainly like in times of less full employment, the assumption has been if you're on the margins of the labor market, you're like, you're not not working, you're working like multiple part-time jobs. And so the idea that like any given job is not supposed to be the sum total of your being, uh, both itself has direct implications for job satisfaction and like if there's nothing that says you can only have two jobs, like maybe you can fit in like a third or fourth gig on weekends sometime, how do you think about the satisfaction you're getting from any one job? Right. That's too much for me. It's too big. We're just, we, we've pointed to a lot of exciting new directions for economists to study. Yeah. So so go forth. Um, non-wage aspects of the labor market. Fascinating. Um, okay. So uh, thanks, guys. And thanks, as always, to our sponsors, to our producer, Jeffrey Geld, uh, and The Weeds. We'll be back on Friday. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.